the positive consequence of testing is the ability for infused product makers to be able to accurately dose their products, which made the infused products category possible. Because when we first started testing back in the day or before testing, as a regular cannabis consumer, someone who loves the plant wouldn't touch an edible because they were basically made by people soaking weed in butter, or maybe they extract some hash and infuse that into their products, but they tasted like cannabis. And you never knew if you were going to eat a brownie, if it had five milligrams in it, or if it had a hundred milligrams in it. And so the edible segment was more for the hardcore users who didn't care if they just got super high for the entire night. And your casual consumers weren't going to touch infused products. And then with testing, now all of a sudden, and regulations, we have caps on how much THC can be in each dose to avoid people accidentally taking too much. And you've got that dosing information right on the package. So even my grandma can go say, well, I don't like to get too high, but I can take five milligrams and it helps me go to sleep and I feel great. And she's able to do that. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Taravi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And today is a day that I hope you all are thoroughly enjoying because if you're listening to this in real time, it means that you are on the other side of 420. And holy shit, what a beautiful sight that is to see. I hope your 420 was fun. I hope your 420 was safe. And I hope your 420 was prosperous. With that said, I am not in real time at the time of recording this. I am on the eve of 420. It is 419. And I'm sitting here wrapping up my day, working on the podcast and thinking what it is that I want to share with you to introduce today's episode. Yes, I'll share a few newsworthy updates here in a bit. And yes, I'll give you a nice introduction to today's guest. But I thought I would also take a moment to highlight the history of not just 420, but specifically expand on how it's been turned into a marketing campaign. And of course, I want to talk about it because talking about taking cannabis to market is one of my favorite topics. So what once originated as a way for a couple of high school kids to designate a time to meet on the side of their school to enjoy some weed has evolved into a massive celebration and platform to speak out about legalization, decriminalization, and normalization of the cannabis plant. It was further cemented as a holiday and widespread thanks to the support from the Grateful Dead, who, by the way, were also master marketers. You could really learn a lot from them. And I pulled some of these notes from my friends at Grasslands. They have a great blog post, which I'll link in the show notes that expands on this, but their blog goes into outline how international and massive 420 has become. It originally was a time of day that is now a day long, sometimes weekend long orchestrated experiences spanning rallies, parties, festivals, marches, gatherings, and not to mention the marketing and sales events of actual cannabis goods promoted and sold. Now, as a longtime cannabis consumer, I vividly remember my early sentiments around 420. It was a wink and a nod. It was a time my friends and I could secretly rally together, almost like our own inside joke, to 
to celebrate and have fun consuming while we smoked a little pot and watched comedies and stuffed our faces with french fries and milkshakes. But the reality is cannabis is going mainstream and as it does, so does 420 Elevate with it. There are major brands getting in on this once secret slang term and it's crazy to me. It shows and highlights the demand, the reach, while also the reality of now who we are up against marketing. From Totino's, who did a hashtag better when baked legalized marinara campaign, which pushed the brand as the official meal of 421, to, of course, Ben and Jerry's, who have, if we're being honest, always had a soft spot for cannabis puns and nods in their many rotating cult flavor favorites. And then this year, one of the bigger brands to re-enter that arena was none other than Jack in the Box, reviving their Pineapple Express shake in time for the holiday. Now, the Grasslands article goes on to compare the celebration of 420 to alcohols, its five o'clock summer mentality, and while I have a love-hate relationship with 420, like, yes, it's fun to celebrate the plant, raise awareness, and drive some business, it's also the literal Super Bowl of cannabis. It is a day that we are expected to go all out in our marketing, collaborations, pop-ups, and deals. The creativity must be exploding, and that's only going to continue to grow as more players inside and outside of the industry vie for attention of this day. So how do we continue to stand out while celebrating the culture, and how do we be creative while navigating censorship? Honest to God, at the time of recording this, I just had a post today get flagged from Instagram from quote-unquote violating their policy, and all I did was reshare a post about one of our 420 events that was already posted as a flyer, and I just reshared it, and I got flagged. And I know it's a small grievance, but it's the reality check this time of year especially brings back to me front and center because yes, we are celebrating, but we are still fighting and working hard at making change, And also, I just hope that this little discussion highlighted the opportunity ahead and how we really just have to go and chase it. And so I would love to hear your thoughts. How do you feel about big brands outside of the industry getting into market cannabis? And I would love to hear too, you know, if it is ultimately helping us or is it hurting us by drawing attention? So real talk, real recognize real. And sincerely, I just would love to know what you think. Okay, I'm going to go rapid fire and just share the headlines, but these are some things I thought you should know about. Uber Eats has added cannabis to its British Columbia platform, and this is after successfully offering cannabis sales through the platform in Ontario. I'm not going to lie, looking for platforms that will deliver cannabis in the United States, even on the hemp side, which is federally legal, is so challenging. So kind of kudos to Uber for taking this plunge in Canada. My hope is that they will see some success with it and try to figure out and how to apply that here in the United States specifically to these hemp products that are federally legal. The next news is legal pot sales eclipse the sales of chocolate in the U.S. And this is a couple of data points to share really quickly for you. In 2022, Americans spend an estimated $30 billion on legal marijuana products, more than they spent on opioid medications, which came in at $22.8 billion, and topical pain relief, which came in at $2.8 billion combined. And this is according to MJ Biz Daily. And last year's total also exceeds the combined total sales of chocolate and craft beer, which saw 20 billion and 7.9 billion, respectively. That's crazy to me. 
It's kind of interesting. I would love to see the trends for 420 sales. So obviously, like timing of this, I don't have this year's sales data to go through. But I would love to see how sales go this year for cannabis in general. I remember being in Denver shortly after 420 last year, and a sentiment was just how much the industry was hurting during that time, I guess is a fair way to phrase it. I don't think they made as much as they were expecting to make. And that was felt across the market. I think we also felt that same way, having a really big 420 the year before that. And then kind of last year, things stabilized out a little bit. So of course, when I hear numbers like this, I'm like, that's awesome. You know, who's making that money in the industry? Is it the dispensaries? Is it the distributors? Is it the cultivators? Is it a mix of all of it? That's maybe another step I should take a look at. It's it's interesting. What does the data say, right? Okay, and then the last thing, Kentucky became the 38th state to legalize medical cannabis, yay, and will be available for purchase as soon as January 1st, 2025. So some specifics of that bill that I thought were particularly interesting to highlight, Kentucky's medical marijuana patients will have access to standard forms of marijuana. So they're going to have edibles, oils, tinctures, capsules, etc., except they have one strange exception that dispensaries cannot sell raw cannabis flour for smoking purposes. However, patients can purchase flour to vaporize, So I don't know how you discern between smoking and vaping and who's really policing that, you know what I mean? And there's definitely no sale of pre-rolls. The bill also contains some other important information for potential businesses and patients alike. It says, Kentucky will not allow marijuana businesses to engage in advertising. What does advertising mean? I'm assuming billboards, maybe magazines, local news, things like that. And then a local government can decide to opt out of allowing dispensaries, but residents can vote to opt back in. And the State Board of Physicians and State Board of Nursing will certify practitioners to legally certify patients. So really a lot of stuff to digest. I hope you're enjoying all this insight. But now to quickly turn to today's guest, co-founder of SC Labs and current Chief Compliance Officer Josh Werzer. I am just so grateful to be connected to Josh. He agreed to come down to Austin and join me on the South by Southwest panel, The Future of Chemically Derived Cannabinoids, which if you didn't listen to that, definitely go back a couple episodes. I uploaded it as audio only. And he's just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to cannabis lab testing and standardization protocols. With over 12 years of cannabis testing lab experience, Josh is an advocate for access to safe and clean cannabis. Me too. He believes that regulations should strike a balance of maximizing consumer safety while minimizing the burden on an industry that's getting squeezed from several directions. Today, Josh manages research and development, regulatory compliance, and laboratory expansion at SC Labs, which is the most trusted and fastest growing lab in the U.S. with facilities in Colorado, California, Oregon, Michigan, and opening up soon in a few other states to help meet the demand of the ever-evolving industry. So much to unpack. Great episode with Josh. Please join me by lighting one up, and let's welcome Josh to the show. I'm Josh Werzer. I'm the chief compliance officer and co-founder at SC Labs. And I've been doing that for the past 13 years now, since 2010. And before that, I, my background is in chemistry. So I started out as out of college as a research and development chemist, doing research and development for drug discovery, then moved on to Samsung, doing research and development for electronic materials, and ended up backing into a job in the cannabis industry. I'd always been tangentially involved in the cannabis industry, whether it's just a consumer or sort of part-time when I moved out to California, having just small grows and stuff like that, back before adult use, when it was more of a cottage industry. And so I've been doing that on the side throughout my career as a chemist and ended up seeing a job posting. Wasn't super looking for a job, but seeing a job posting for a 
lab director at an analytical testing lab. And at the end of the posting, she said, must be comfortable working with medical marijuana. And so I updated my CV more just to see what was going on because nothing like that existed at the time. And I sent in my resume just to see what, what was going on and I got an interview the next day. Long story short, it was Steep Hill Labs. It was the first lab in the country and, or in the world anywhere that was set up solely for testing cannabis for the medical, at that time, medical marijuana market. And they were just about to open and their lab director had walked out on them. So they were in need of a lab director and I was ready to move on to something else and figured this would be a great thing to, to kill some time while I found a real job and I'd leave it off my resume and all that. So I accepted the job and all these years later, this is what I'm still doing. So anyway, so I accepted that job, worked there for about a year, thought they had a great business model, but you know, the thought that they could be more science focused and wanted to build out a laboratory that was more kind of full service that could do the contaminant testing that I wanted to do on cannabis as opposed to just cannabinoid testing, which is pretty much what we were doing at the time. Found a couple of partners that kind of saw the vision and the idea as well. And, and there ended up being four of us. We founded SC Labs and in 2010. And so for the first 12 or so years, I served as the president of SC Labs. And then last April, we brought in some more investors and brought more people into the team. And through that, I was, I've been able to focus my role a little bit more. So for the first or last nine months or so, I was the chief operating officer. And now I've moved to chief compliance officer, figuring out my new role within a large organization. We've been adding a bunch of labs over the last several years or over the last year. So we brought in two labs in Colorado, one in Michigan, one in Arizona. We're starting one in New York, in addition to the ones we already had in California and Oregon. It's been a busy year. But, no, that's yeah. remarkable. It's cool to, obviously, I'll give like the listeners a little bit of background too. So we connected digitally. I'm very familiar with SC Labs. You guys have built a very respected name in the industry when it comes to cannabis testing. And it's cool to then hear your background coming from Steep Hill. Obviously, like you highlighted them really being one of the first key players when it comes to establishing what this looks like and how to apply it with the industry. But we got a chance to meet in person when you came down to Austin just a couple months ago to talk at South by Southwest. And I just wanted to give some props to you, kudos to us as a conversation. I think it was really well received. I've still been getting a lot of great feedback. I just had someone yesterday who was like, this was the best discussion, most well-rounded conversation on these synthetic and synthesized cannabinoids. And I just, I have to give credit to you being one of those key people on that panel representing SC, representing your background. And so now just grateful to have you on the podcast and be able to dive a little bit deeper because I think like I was conversing and alluding to, lab testing is important. It has been around since California really set the stage for what medical marijuana was going to look like, the role of, then of adult use. But you talked about consumer safety as well of that, like wanting to be able to test for these contaminants. I want to take a step back because I feel like lab testing, there's a lot of good, bad, and ugly, but ultimately it's for the good of the consumer, which my listeners know that's a vein that I like to talk on a lot because everything that we are doing in this industry is ultimately for human consumption. And so how do you take this plant that I think there's like a joker saying like, it's a weed, It can it's called weed, like it can literally grow anywhere. And that is both good and chaotic because depending on where it's grown, how it's grown, obviously nutrients, it's a plant. You're getting into then like the scaling of producing this plant. And I know you just from like a general user perspective, it is a, I'm going to forget the technical term now that we're on the spot, but it absorbs what is in the soil around it. And so knowing all of that, I just want to take a step back and hear from your perspective 
what is the pulse on cannabis lab testing right now? How does SC play a role in that? Maybe from when you originally founded the company to now how it's evolved over the years? Like, I'm just curious to get an understanding of what was lab testing like in the Steep Hill early SC labs days to now how has it evolved? Has it evolved a lot? Has it evolved a little? Are we still using the same type of machines to do this testing? Because I just think that's a really helpful place to start setting the stage for the conversation. Yeah, for sure. And and that's maybe where I have the best stories. I mean, I'm certainly, I don't think the best chemist that's ever studied cannabis, but I've been here since the beginning. So I definitely have. And it's been really a privilege to be able to do that. And in the laboratory too, you're the nexus of the industry because all the producers, growers are coming through wanting to talk, shop, kind of share stories, get some intel or get some information as far as the science of cannabis. And we've been able to hold that cool kind of position within there. And then early on, we were actually interacting more so with the retail side of things or the dispensary owners, because in those early days, especially, well, I guess everywhere, but California was a little bit late to the party, fully legalized, considering that we were the first to the party when it came to decriminalization and and medical legalization. Growers and, and infused product makers, which infused product makers didn't really exist as a category, no, certainly not like they do today at the time. But but a lot of them weren't willing to do branding or to come out of the closet because it was still legally a gray area and people were still getting raided and still getting busted. So m- almost all of our customers at the time, or the vast majority, maybe 90%, were actually dispensary owners who wanted to test things on their shelf. So early on, obviously, with no testing requirements didn't come until we were seven, eight years into this thing, it was all just voluntary. So we would go to dispensary owners and make the case for why their customers, why it would be worth it for them to incur this extra cost of testing things on their shelf, because it would be a value add to their customers. And then early on, we we partnered with MAPS and became very good close business-wise, as well as really good relationships with sort of the principals over there as well. And they really did us a solid because they saw the value in it early on too. And as a website that was a listing website, outside of reviews, they were looking for ways to you know quantitatively compare uh, the different products that were being listed on their website. So they saw the value in testing for their website and really pushed that down to the dispensary owners who were the ones that advertise on their websites. So that was the biggest difference early on is who we were testing for. But back to this, over the years, we've gotten to see all these companies and see the industry go from fledgling to what we've become today, which is a fully baked industry. So that's been really exciting to see, so be a part of. But yeah, early on, that was the biggest thing is who we were testing for and the fact that it was voluntary. And the testing industry, so maybe one of the biggest challenges facing us now is that with mandatory testing in all of these states, um, and then the kind of competition that's come up and how lean these cannabis companies have gotten to be, where the wholesale prices for cannabis have come up really, have gone way down in, in most of the established adult use states. People aren't making the margins that maybe they anticipated making five, six years ago. And so, you know, it, it's become really competitive. And right now, in, in a lot of states, one of the main indicators of what you're going to get wholesale for your cannabis flowers is going to be the THC content or the concentration of THC in the material. So there's a huge incentive for growers and people selling these products to seek out labs that will give them uh, a little bit higher of a test score on their THC concentration, or maybe it doesn't have a sensitive test when they're looking for pesticides or something like that. And by and large, the vast majority of the labs aren't doing, aren't acquiescent to those requests, but there are a couple that have a huge financial interest in doing so. 
in a lot of states that's become an issue is some of these THC results that some labs are getting are suspect, let's say. And that's been a major hurdle to tackle. But and we certainly get a lot of pressure from our customers, like, well, the lab next door will make sure I don't test under 30% on my flowers or something like that. And we've never been that lab. And since we come from the voluntary days, certainly there was some pressure back then, but more often than not, people were actually more so looking for the accurate numbers because they were there voluntarily. So they weren't, and so they're self-selected. And in those people were just looking for accuracy and really saw the ethos behind voluntarily testing all of their products for their consumers to ensure their consumers were safe, to ensure their consumers had accurate dosage information on the products. And you would think back in the Wild West days of the cannabis industries with people who are essentially still coming out of legalization and had one foot in the black market and one foot in the gray market, um, we got a lot less pressure to, to turn out high THC results then. And in back then, it was, it was maybe one or two customers here and there that would try and trick us and send things in under a different name to get a higher result so they could post it on their weed maps menu. But very little of that. And so it just, it was, it's been funny to see how, how much more pressure we've gotten to, to maybe compromise our ethics once we got under regulation. Whereas when it was a bunch of, let's say, drug dealers back in the good old days that were testing with us voluntarily, it was much more honest. So that's been an interesting change. And then one of the cooler things too to see over the years is the infused products market becomes so big. And I think, say the previous example I gave where, where, become hyper-focused on the THC concentration of flowers, which again, is I think as a scientist is missing the point because a high THC concentration in a flower, when you take an inhale, a draw off of like say a joint, you're exhaling 90% of those cannabinoids you inhaled. If you wanted to get a little bit higher and your strain was only a 14% strain, let's say, all you have to do is hold it in a little bit longer. But I'll blame that on the labs. I'll blame the lab testing has created that problem. I don't think the answer would be to stop testing things for dosage, but it certainly is a problem we have to overcome, and that's due to lab testing. The, this didn't exist before, and there were a lot of great strains when we first started testing that regularly tested 14, all the purples, things like Bubba Kush, LA Confidential. These were great, really flavorful strains, but they didn't test high enough, and people either bred versions of them that produce more THC and lost what you had, the magic you had in that original variety, or they, those varieties have disappeared. Things like Purple Urkel, like I said, Bubba Kush, LA Confidential, you don't see those anymore because they just don't test high enough. And they're great strains. So that's been, a, I think, a negative consequence of testing. But the positive consequence of testing is the ability for infused product makers to be able to accurately dose their products, which made the infused products category possible. Because when we first started testing back in the day or before testing, as a regular cannabis consumer, someone who loves the plant, wouldn't touch an edible because they were basically made by people soaking weed in butter, or maybe they extract some hash and infuse that into their products, but they tasted like cannabis. And you never knew if, you know, you're going to eat a brownie if it had five milligrams in it or if it had a hundred milligrams in it. And so the edible segment was more for the hardcore users who didn't care if they just got super high for the entire night. And your casual consumers weren't going to touch infused products. And then with testing, now all of a sudden and regulations, we have caps on how much THC can be in each dose to avoid people accidentally taking too much. And you've got that dosing information right on the package. So even my grandma can go say, well, I don't like to get too high, but I can take five milligrams and it helps me go to sleep and I feel great. And she's able to do that. And so these this infused products category went from this niche product category for only the most hardcore of, of cannabis enthusiasts to now the one that's an entryway 
into cannabis. And like I said, now people like who are maybe never tried it before or are not looking for a real high at all, but want to take advantage of some of the health benefits of cannabinoids. That's where they start first is they start with the infused product category. And so just to see that, that go from this niche wacky kind of thing to now the kind of new user friendly segment, it has been really interesting. And it's been just really exciting to see what people have been able to create different creative ways they've been able to infuse cannabis into different products. And then also too, it's not maybe I'm not going to take as much credit for it or give as much credit for this to the testing industry. But I remember seeing my first dab about a year or two into testing for the laboratory, went down to Weed Maps, and uh, they, th- their people there were like, have you guys ever tried a dab? And we're like, never even heard of it. And they brought us into their smoke room and, it, and dabbed us out. And I've been consuming cannabis since I was a teenager at that point, And I felt like I was a teenager all over again. So it was, that was an interesting thing too, is to see the proliferation of concentrates that moved into vape pens and to see that whole segment go from kind of nothing, just hash again for the, the niche cannabis consumers or maybe someone who grew up in over the pond in Europe and was used to hash. But though that whole category was also a niche thing and not certainly something where people would say, I only smoke hash. That was a very rare thing to hear. But now you hear people saying, I only smoke concentrates or I only so- smoke vape. Yeah, it's just been really cool over the years. I've got a million stories like that where just being able to have kind of a really cool vantage point to watch some of these people who have really innovated in the cannabis industry do their thing. No, I really love those stories because it highlights the progression. Just it takes me back to thinking of because I've also been consuming cannabis for probably way longer than my parents would like to acknowledge that I've been consuming cannabis. But I have more of the curiosity, I'll use that word, to eat an edible and see what happens later. What's the new saying to fuck around and find out? Like, I'm that person. I'm like, yep, Colorado, you just legalized and nobody's really regulating how much THC needs to be in this little chocolate truffle. I Maybe it's 100, maybe it's 20. I don't know. I'm going to eat it anyways. I think those are the early days where People hadn't really figured out how to fully like blend their products. And so it was maybe this one has this much and that one has that much. And then you're just on the ride. You're on the journey. And so you really did have to be a cannabis consumer, open-minded to the sentiment of fuck around and find out versus now you have so many people entering the marketplace. So this is just making me think of it certainly more from a marketing angle. Obviously, you do. You want to be able to market these products. And so that's where transparency, clarity the science of understanding how much is in this product, which we obviously see in so many other industries, but cannabis seems to struggle with it. You obviously work in it more closely. And so I'm happy to hear that there's way more positive than there is maybe negative. But I think I would like to shine a light on the negative just to hear your thoughts on this, because this is what I've been observing both as a retailer, as a consumer, as someone who sits in a media position in the industry. One, you were talking about lab shopping. obviously. That's marketing to me to some extent because the brand just wants to sell the highest THC and we see that every day. We have customers who come in and they don't care about anything else. You could educate them on the science of the terpenes and the flavonoids and the consumption method is really what impacts their overall you know, effects, but they just are looking for the THC. And so what does that do? Well, then it encourages the cultivators or these brands to find out ways to manipulate it, whether it's through genetics, modification, or it's through this actual testing I don't know what you even want to call it, this lab shopping for sure, but I was going to say almost like a loophole where as long as the test says, which is what I've heard also, as long as the test says, then that's what you go off of as a brand. And so I know I'm saying a lot of things. I don't know what the explicit question is, but I'm just trying to paint a broad picture of 
You then layer that on top of, and so I'm glad I have you here because you operate in multiple Your role is compliance. So I have to understand that you know a lot about compliance in the space. When you have different states testing their products, what does that look like in terms of the regulation or the compliance for those products? Like, from my perspective, there's no law in Texas that says you have to test your products in Texas by a Texas lab. Maybe that's a benefit to the lab because, hey, I'm in Texas and I can test my products at SC Labs in California. Or is that maybe a disservice to the testing companies who are setting up in Texas? But then obviously there's quality and not all labs are made equal because there is this lab shopping. And so you want to work with people who you know are doing a good job. But then the final point I'll kind of air as a brand, we, we're getting, and I definitely want to get into these new cannabinoids. You were talking obviously about different testing for products, but I definitely want to get into testing different cannabinoids, but I want to focus on kind of the, maybe it's part of the negative sentiment of testing, but really around, I had a product, we were testing it. It was Delta 8 early days and I took it to two labs and both labs are giving me different numbers. And I, as the brand, as consumer, am saying, I don't care. You say you're right and you say you're right and they're wrong. I don't care who's right and who's wrong. I just want to know what's accurate. And so I struggle, I think, not just as a brand, but as someone who sits in this industry and acknowledges like, what is true? Who is setting the standards when it comes to lab testing? And is it beneficial if we create standards that say, hey, you make products in California, you should test your products in California? Is there benefit to saying, yeah, make your products in California, but test in New York? Other than the cost of shipping and other variables, I'm just trying to get an understanding from your perspective of, I, I see, I see the possibility of where it can get better. Cause to me, lab testing is based on science and science for the most part has some explicits to it. But yet we as an industry are fumbling our fingers and it's like, I don't know where, what is accurate. And that's what scares me ultimately as a consumer, knowing that so much crap goes on in testing. It's not enough just to say, oh, I'm the brand. I have a COA. It's like, well, I don't fucking know where that COA even came from and who even made that COA and going into kind of that dovetail of the thought process. So don't know what the question was, but feel free to jump in and start answering something there. No, and that all makes sense. And and I don't want to paint too gloomy of a picture. Another thing before compliance testing came in, in the 12 months preceding where we instituted compliance testing. At the time, we had a pesticide test. I mean, it only had 12 analytes. And in some states now, we're looking for over 100 analytes on our pesticide panel. And our sensitivity on that test, we just picked kind of the 12 most common ones that growers were using at the time and developed our own panel since no one was giving us any oversight on this. And our sensitivity on that test wasn't even down to the levels that we're looking for a lot of these state tests. And well over 60% of the flowers we saw in just the months preceding regulation um, failed our test, which was much easier to get by than the eventual compliance test. And almost 80% of concentrates failed that test that we tested. And those were, se- and those were self-selected voluntary entries too. So those were s- presumably the cream of the crop. And then immediately after regulations, the failure rate for pesticides went down to one or 2%. And it's gotten better even in the several years since that's happened. And with cannabis being inhaled directly rather than eaten, it's a, you know, a small amount of contaminants can have a lot, potentially a lot more toxic effect in your body than if you eat, if you ate those same contaminants. So I think it's really important. And I think now the, the upside is we have one of the cleanest consumer products, even with some of the, the issues we're facing 
we have some of the clean, and those issues exist in other industries for sure. And I'll get into that, but, uh, but we do have one of the cleanest consumer products out there. And so I think we've done a great service to the cannabis industry by making sure it's clean and safe because there's so many out people out there just waiting for us to put a black eye on ourselves. So that way they can point and say, look, I told you cannabis should stay illegal. And there's been a lot of upside, but certainly just like everything else in the cannabis industry, the cannabis industry makes things more difficult than they have to be. So with testing, you've got these states, each state has to set up their own quality control and regulatory framework. And, uh, and so unfortunately, every state has done it differently. They've picked different tests we have to do. That's starting to get standardized, but what we actually, what actual compounds we're looking for on those tests is different from state to state. Action limits, since there's no sort of a nationally established safe limits for any of these compounds in cannabis, every state sets slightly different action limits or the threshold with which you can pass or fail. Um, and then how they regulate the labs and in, in the whole lab testing pipeline is different. So in California, we're testing at the distributor level. A lot of states were testing directly for the growers and the manufacturers. California and a lot of other states, we send a sampler on site and they pull the samples from the batch. So there's less chance for funny business under camera. Some states, the growers and the manufacturers just send us a sample and say, Hey, it's for this batch. Take our word for it. Which you cannot, it's obvious why there would be some issues there. A lot of it too is, you know, states, states don't have any other choice because the feds aren't going to step in and regulate it. And then also these products can't cross state lines. So at our labs, um, we can test hemp samples from all over the country. So that operates more, say, an environmental or a food lab would. And then, yeah, just like anything else in America, I can do business with someone in Nevada, even though I'm in California, the same as I can do business with someone in California. Interstate trade is supposed to be open across the country. But with the cannabis products, we can't cross state lines with them. So we have to test those products in state. And, and then every, and then, Texas is a great example of a state that's picking a whole different tact with their medical system. They're wanting each license type to be soup to nuts, vertically integrated, everything from seed to sale, and that includes testing. So these license types will have to have internal quality control testing, which works just fine, but you can also see that there's obviously huge conflicts of interest there. So, you know, th that requires greater oversight from regulators. So hopefully that's what Texas does. But yeah, I think the solution is just as we keep moving on, states will get better with oversight of this part of the process. There's just common sense things that they can do to hold labs accountable. There's plenty of different third-party accreditations that we hold in our various labs that good laboratories should hold. One of the main ones you want to look for is ISO 17025 is a gold standard for laboratory accreditation. It's not the government that does it. It's an international group that establishes sort of the outline of it. And then there's third-party accrediting agencies that come in and audit you and go through your SOPs and audit your personnel and observe you doing the testing and then either give you the accreditation or not. And then the states, the states in most places do the same thing themselves looking for things specific to the laws in that state. So it's just greater oversight. And I think as the industry matures and a lot of these companies realize that they're in it for the long haul, they're the people who are here for the long haul don't want to see a recall. They don't want to see some sort of consumer get sick on their product and have that bad mark on their reputation. So they tend to become less or more risk averse and less inclined to, to want results other than the accurate results. If there, if there is an issue there, they want to see it. They want to pull the product, move on. 
I'm speaking in generalities. That's certainly not the case across the board. And there's a lot of people that are still in it that got into it because they believe in cannabis and they're there for a certain ethos. And those people aren't looking for anything but the truth either. But the cold hard economic realities of it is if I can get a thousand dollars for my pound wholesale versus 600 by testing over 30 instead of 25, you know, that's going to be there. And that's where the regulators come in and need to have better oversight. And maybe hopefully someday they'll help from the federal government who, you know, with environmental labs and food labs, the federal government by far does the bulk of that oversight and people fear the FDA more than a lot of times they fear maybe their local state regulators or their local state environmental agency. No, that's a fair point. I think it makes me start to separate, obviously, of course, like you're highlighting, if I'm a California marijuana brand, I'm licensed by the state of California. I, of course, legally have to test my products within that state. And so, yes, if I'm a brand that cares about what I'm creating ultimately for human consumption, then yes, I would want to work with the best lab that isn't just the best because they're not going to lab change my results, but they're also making sure they have the right accreditation, they have the right certifications. They're dedicating and showing that they are going to be committed to being a leader in the space to helping influence, I think, better standardization, which is a weird area that I just want to pick apart with you more of like who sets the standards and how do you like step up to set the standards. I was a part of ASTM for a little bit and I know that lab uh, standards was like a component of that conversation. And it was honestly so overwhelming to me because you have, again, the picture is you have state by state where I'm regulated marijuana, I'm within my state confines versus the space that I play in more, which is the hemp space where, oh my God, yeah, I would, I, the state does not, re- Texas does not require me to test within the state of Texas, which I wish they would require us to get our products tested within the state because I think each state, unfortunately, has different standards. And so I find it is more ripe for funny business when you have, let's say, a Texas brand and they are then getting their products tested in Oregon. A really prime example of that right now, I think that we're navigating through is THCA flower. It's, in my opinion, marijuana, (laughs) but depending on where it's grown, that could maybe be classified as THCA flower. And there's a couple other nuances in there, but a kind of a trick that I've observed as I'm calling and talking to these growers who are cultivating quote unquote THCA flower. I, for example, am not going to be buying quote unquote THCA flower from California that has a California COA because that seems suspicious to me. But yet I see so many brands here in Austin. I'm going to call them out agnostically. They're selling me fucking THCA flower with the California COA. And I'm like, it just seems really suspicious. You guys aren't even trying to do your homework. But then the state regulation, which to your point, yeah, I wish people were enforcing regulation. Unfortunately, in Texas, they're not. And I'm sure it's like that in other states as well, who are maybe more on the hemp side than the marijuana side. Certainly there's more regulation on the marijuana side. But you have people who are just doing things and it's there there's no accountability and to me it's ultimately the consumer is the one who loses out when there isn't standardization or enforcing of that standardization right and so part of the question maybe for you is what is your take on some of these differences between the hemp and marijuana like do you see one side of the industry over manipulating labs and coas Or is it just rampant across the board, inconsistent? And then 
also want to get into who sets the standard. I know that you guys just were featured in Forbes on a trust in testing certification. It says brands now have a way of identifying labs that are meeting the highest threshold standards across the state. It's SC Labs, and I believe another lab is originally in this certification with you guys. But did y'all, like this is y'all certification. Y'all came together, these multiple labs, and you're saying, hey, we want to set standards. This is what the standards to us look like. This is what you should look for. And ultimately, it's going to award a seal that these brands who are testing with this trust and testing program certification, the ability to use this seal so customers can then build that trust. So I just want to understand how does that even get established too? Because I know the answer. I I think early days when we got in the industry, and I've certainly not been in as long as you have, but especially being here in Texas, my first six months to a year in business, I was like, who do I look at? Like, who do I learn from? Who's doing this? Well, what's the gold standard? And then I was realizing nobody's doing this in my home state. I have to step forward and be a little bold and draw a line in the sand. And once we drew the line in the sand, obviously you're seeing other people contribute and help further establish that line. Or maybe we're going to move the line up. We're going to move the line back. But it's so hard in an industry where it seems like everybody, going back to my analogy or my real life experience where I tested a product, I had two labs, they're both pointing the finger at the other lab saying they're wrong, they didn't test right. And I'm like, I don't care who's right or wrong. I just want to know what's accurate. And so getting into setting standards. So the two questions are, do you see discrepancies between hemp and marijuana? Or is it pretty even? And then how do you even begin to scratch the surface on setting standards? And what does that look like for SC labs? I mean, obviously, there's different panels that can be run. There's different calibrations. The certification is just from what y'all need to have, ISO certified, et cetera. But like, what, what is going into your trust and testing certification and setting up those standards? And how are y'all attacking that very grandiose mountain that needs to be attacked? Yeah, well, the biggest difference between hemp and cannabis is the hemp customers are complaining that there's too much THC we test. And the, and the marijuana customers are complaining that there's not enough THC. That's Okay, the big- that's fair. That's the biggest thing we hear is trying to push us in different directions. And I think getting to, to some of the stuff we do in, in, in this trust and testing and certainly other things, I think now being the OG lab, I think we're the longest still operating lab that, that is a cannabis testing lab out there that I'm aware of, at least. And I think part of our responsibility is to use sort of that long vision that we have from just being around so long in a leadership role and to help help w- solve some of these problems. And when we were talking about how there's all these incentives for some labs to maybe put their hand on the scale a little bit, but when talking with some of our auditors and other people in the industry, and in my own experience, there's also just, just like everywhere in the cannabis industry, it was a brand new industry, it's a boon industry, and it attracted a lot of people to jump in and try and make their fortune. And you have people getting into industries that they maybe don't have a long background on. If I was someone starting an environmental lab nowadays, you would assume someone starting an environmental lab would have a long experiment experience working environmental testing. Because otherwise, I mean, how would you be successful in such a competitive industry? But cannabis isn't that way. We saw people there's every day opening labs, no experience, but hey, cannabis is new, it's growing, everything has to be tested, the lab must be a good business. And they come in and they realize, well, first they realize that our margins aren't like the rest of the cannabis industry margins. And it's, and you have to be a lean business and you have to, it's hard to do when you know how to run a testing lab. And a lot of this too is just 
all these, and just like in the cannabis industry, you had all these people jump in, get cultivation licenses, and then realize that there's a skill set to growing can- quality cannabis. And they just turned out a bunch of shitty cannabis if they even got it off the vine or got it off the plant. So it's the same way in testing. You had a lot of people open testing labs without a great background, maybe hire, didn't, even if you're going to hire the science people, you have to know what to look for in a science person. And a lot of this too just comes from these are new labs that aren't doing, that don't necessarily know how to do all this stuff correctly. And there's no guidance. If I open an environmental lab, I can go open the AOAC official methods of analysis and find hundreds of ways to test for heavy metals in groundwaters that are AOAC approved, that have already been validated, that the methods are sound, the methodology is sound, you just follow the recipe. None of that existed in cannabis. And now we're just starting to get some sort of accepted reference methods where people can start. And so all of these things, just like everything else in the cannabis industry, confounded to make it way more difficult than it should be. And so, uh, so with this truth and testing thing, there's certainly other groups out there that are, you mentioned ASTM, that has a third-party accreditation. They come in, they do audits of the lab, they look for some things that maybe aren't required in every state, but are but should be, things like that. And, and, and that's what we try to do, is put together an accreditation that fills in some of the blind spots that exist in, in certain in different states, and those blind spots are different in every state, but fill in all the gaps where if you're following all these practices, your customers who are ordering tests from you should have a high degree of confidence that they're going to get back an accurate result and in that all of your methods have passed sort of the gold standard, not just the minimum requirements, but the gold standard on how to, on whether it's quality control, whether it's methodology, whether it's just ethics for your staff in, in how to approach some of these places where they can make a choice one way or another and in, in not maybe even a nefarious choice, but just a, a choice that could alter someone's test results. And we see it as our duty. And again, too, as labs who, you know, are crossing all our T's and dotting all our I's competitively, it's advantageous to us if all the other labs are doing the same thing as well. Then we're just competing on the quality of our service rather than the quality of our testing. And so that's why we did that. And then on, on top of that, they send me around it to do presentations like we did at South by Southwest. And we've been very active, just like you were, in a lot of these rules advisory committees in the states where we exist and and try and be as active as we can. In in California this year, we're sponsoring a a bill. It's AB 1610 Jones-Sawyer bill. And actually, it requires the state in California to give us yearly on-site audits, which they're not currently doing. It requires them to do blind proficiency testing of us, to do secret shopper testing, to make public any regulatory actions against the labs. And in the truth of the matter is most of the California labs have shown support for the bill as well. There's very few industries that and in the cannabis industry does this time and time again. We're just so happy to have, have things legal. There's very few industries where the industry will actually say, hey, we want greater oversight. We want greater regulation. But I think everyone realizes, you know, in the long run, that's what makes this industry viable. That's what makes the testing industry viable. That's what makes the cannabis industry keep the safe and the hemp industry keep the safety profile of their products in line so that way all of us don't get blindsided by something like that vape crisis a set a few years ago where those were all black market vapes but all of a sudden there's this rash of people dying and getting serious lung diseases from these cutting agents people were using in black market vapes now that wouldn't that didn't happen in the regulated market because of testing now we weren't testing for vitamin E at the time but they were actually cutting the product so they could get more product out of the same, more vape pens out of the same amount of product. And that didn't happen in any of the regulated markets because no one would want to see their THC results 
go down with that cutting. So I guess that's one place where the quest for high THC saves some lives. But something like that happening in the regulated either hemp or marijuana markets would have been a huge thing to get over with in our quest for legalization. Long-term benefits us all to make sure that we're all doing things by the book. And so yeah, so I think long-term that's going to continue to be a focus of ours is just trying to advocate for quality and transparency in the testing industry. Otherwise, why are we even doing this? If you can't trust the results we're giving people, all we give people is a piece of paper. Or nowadays, it's just a PDF. We don't even give them the paper and with some numbers on it. And so unless people have trust and faith in those numbers, and this goes back to our ethos when we were doing this voluntarily, unless people can trust our integrity, what good are those numbers we're giving people? Then why are we even doing this? So yeah, so that's the genesis of that trust and testing and some of the other work. Quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. No, that makes sense. The rising tide, I do believe, lifts all boats. And it does take someone, to your point, maybe now you could get into the industry opening a lab saying, hey, I worked for this, that, and the other lab in this state or in this part of town. But really those formative years, which probably we're still in those formative years, I'll just be honest, is a lot of people who maybe don't come from that background explicitly or from testing that plant and We're all learning as we go, but I agree it is something that we need to continue to drive home trust and safety. That's really cool to hear that California, I'll give them some kudos, I suppose. I know the industry is ricocheting everybody all over the place right now, but it is important. And I think that's a sentiment that I have that my peers have here in Texas as well. We want to be regulated. We just want to be able to help advise on what those regulations should be, as well as have some consistency of what that is going to actually look like being implemented. Because when it's inconsistent, which it is right now, it's so hard for me to understand how different states can have different requirements. And then even lab to lab, they have different machines, different calibrations. I think you use the term reference points. So Maybe a follow-up to that is just using your own lab. Maybe it's lab to lab. So let's say a lab in Oregon versus a lab in California. I'm assuming you have the same equipment, but obviously this is not being done by just a machine. It's also human intervening. So you have human error potentially. How does that actually get us towards a standard knowing that there are variabilities in the testing process. And I'm just curious maybe to understand how you learn through that. Like, how do you train somebody how to use a machine so that it can get as close to accurate as possible? Is it the form factor, which you were certainly bringing up earlier? Is that adding more complexity? Like, hey, we know how to test flour, but now we're testing a sticky substance like a concentrate, or now I'm having to test a crumbled up brownie. In a non-science world, yes, you plug in X medium into Y machine and maybe it just magically understands the chemicals and the stuff that's in there. Obviously, very unscientific language I'm using. But 
I know it's much more complex than that. And so just getting at the nuances, like when you establish this trust in testing, is it an actual guidebook for other labs to be able to pick up and say, oh, these are the machines SC is using. These are the calibrations they're using. Let's make sure that we're calibrating our stuff to the same standard. Because I think that's just where we distill it back down into people are just, my way is the best way and fuck that person's idea. And it's like, well... Yeah, but maybe they know what they're talking about and maybe we should adopt their standard at least again to put a line in the sand. So I'm just curious how y'all navigate that component of it to get everybody to be on this standard testing. Yeah, and, and, and so two kind of parts to that. So you asked about the state to state. And so, yeah, since you can test across state lines is a, is a hemp business owner, <laughs> most states that have state-specific regulations and testing requirements for the hemp industry We'll have regulations specific to that testing. And it, but again, just like everything else I said, it's different from state to state. So in Colorado, our California lab got licensed to do the Colorado hemp panel. And we also have the Colorado labs doing it. We wanted our California lab to have it too. And so we applied for the licensure. We had to develop all these methods, validate them to Colorado standards. And then Colorado actually sent their Department of Health people out to our California lab to audit and inspect our lab. So with regard to Colorado, we have basically the same accreditation and the same oversight from the regulators that someone within the boundaries of Colorado would get. So that's the way it needs to be done or the way it should be done. Other states, Texas did a decent job too. When we got our license to test hemp products in Texas, there was a questionnaire and they at least went through some of our documents, some of our quality control protocols and stuff like that. And before we could get a license in, and we also had to have our third party ISO accreditation and stuff like that. So there was somewhere in the middle and then some states don't even care. So I guess the first thing, if you are going to test out of state or if you're a hemp manufacturer and you have maybe some more options in the marijuana side of things is if you're going to test out of state, make sure that lab is licensed to test in your state. Other people, if you have some sort of technical uh, background, or you just want to see what's going on, or you have someone on staff that does, Laboratories should welcome you to come in and actually audit their systems. We have customers on a regular basis come in, go through our quality documentation, go through our SOPs, and make sure that we're doing things correctly because ultimately they're the ones that are going to get sued in the recall. You don't necessarily just want to take your lab's word for it and go in and ask them to open up the books. And just their response to that request will tell you a lot. But yeah, right? From the state to state thing, that's you know, that's important. But as far as starting to coalesce around standards, it's just going to take time without united on food testing, we're united on environmental testing, because most of that is dictated by the federal government. So no matter what state you are in, the states might have some alterations to the environmental laws. Certainly California loves to do that. But you know, your basis of your regulatory environment, the oversight of things like laboratory testing, all of that is is the more or less the same across the states. And obviously, since that's not in California or anywhere else in the United States with regard to cannabis, that adds a lot to it. So there is a lot more variation. Even like our lab network, we spend a ton of time making sure that as much as possible, our tests are harmonized across the different markets we're in. And we're starting to get some of those, like I said, reference methods, which are methods that people have submitted AOAC. It doesn't really stand for anything anymore. It originally stood for the the Association of Agricultural Chemists, but they brought everyone else under the fold. And now they're the big international organization. And their sort of main, you know, function in the testing world is vetting and then publishing reference methods for any type of testing. 
So now we have some. We have a couple AOAC approved methods for cannabinoids or testing for aspergillus and flow or even some pesticide or metals ones I think have come out now. But so you can use those. So if you use those, you're like, all right, if I do the test this way, this has been vetted by a panel of scientists, given approval, gone through the process, passed the muster. But if I own a lab and I say, well, yeah, I want to do this testing, but the AOAC method is, is twice as expensive as this other technique I've found to do it. Well, then at least you still have that method to benchmark against. And then when you're going in a validation is what our analytical chemists, we call the process of just doing just that is characterizing your test and proving that the measurements you're taking are accurate and then characterizing how accurate they are because every measurement has a little plus or minus to it. So there's a whole science behind how you go about validating your testing method. And so if even if I don't want to use that reference method and follow that recipe, I want, I think I can do it better, faster, cheaper, more accurate, whatever. You want people to be able to innovate and continue to improve and to continue to, to get better in, in every industry, including the testing industry. So at least now I have a way to, I have a method that I can go back and benchmark my test against. And I have a whole set of rules and procedures I can follow to prove that my test is accurate. And then that validation report should be available to my regulators, should be available to my third-party auditors, and it should be available to my customers who want to come in and see the proof that the numbers I'm giving them are correct. So that's the thing, is just to continue to iterate, continue to have more options, more information in the public sphere, where where more of this stuff has been published, more of that scientific body of information is available to everyone. Um, and we'll continue to get better. And then, yeah, and then as the regulators figure out how to keep a better eye on the labs, that will help too, because we all fear the regulators. And, and just like with anything else, if think that if you see, you know, a cop sitting on your road to work at least once a week catching speeders, well, then you're less likely to speed on your way to work every day because, you know, there's a chance that could be you. Same thing in anything. If the laboratories know that there's proper oversight in that maybe the regulators might go pull something off the shelf and test it. And if that test doesn't match up, they're going to have to answer for it. Then you just see that stuff naturally start to help it start to heal itself. That's a very good point to bring up of just, and it requires everybody in the industry, right, to step up. And so that really, I think, is part on the lab, part on the brand, part on the regulators. And I just, I look forward to specifically my state having better regulation because I just, I say it out in the ether, but I'm also like, maybe don't start tomorrow, but do start tomorrow. It'd be great to meet them. We just, we don't really see our regulators here. It's interesting to hear that Texas did have I guess, a form for you to fill out or to get some more information. Even better to hear Colorado is like, no, let's go in person. Obviously, that's taking more of the ownership to actually humanize it, I think, and give some structure to it. But I overall empathize. It's a very large mountain that we're starting to unpack. I'll share this kind of note. I was in DC lobbying last year. And we were not talking about testing at all. We were talking about the FDA coming in and regulating it as safe to add into food. This is specifically for CBD. And I forget what the second thing we were lobbying and trying to talk about was, but it was not related to testing. And we're going in these offices and we're talking to these people and they're bringing up testing like, oh, well, we hear there's inconsistencies with testing. And oh, well, we hear, and this is certainly on the hemp CBD side. And oh, we hear there's lab shopping. And I'm like, like, yes, we're very aware of those issues. We're not here talking about that today. We're here talking about these other issues that are very important as well. But you can just start to see 
as an industry to your point of getting some sort of federal guide guidance guidelines where they're actually setting a standard, I just don't see them really wanting to anytime soon. And so it's further putting the onus back on us as an industry to obviously not just self-regulate, but actually to impose better regulations as an industry through standardizations when it comes to specifically this conversation, obviously testing. So it's like, I just, I heard them and I'm like, they're with you. We need better testing. But how do you start to unpack that? And obviously you, by way of SC Labs, seem to be at least trying to take it head on and make some adjustments and take some leadership, which I think is really important to have in the industry. And I guess it leads me into like the final part of the conversation, which really touches on what we were discussing at South by, which is these chemically derived cannabinoids, but also full synthetics. The long short of it is right. I think where my brain is going, how does a cannabis lab know to even test for something that we don't even know exists? So like, how do you test for some of these cannabinoids that? Like on one end of the spectrum, yes, like Delta-8 is naturally occurring. And so maybe you have some compound somewhere that you can reference and say, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like naturally. Okay, now we're going to go test this version of it. But then when you're getting into some of these new, I think, what do they call like the Frankenstein kind of HCJD is one or THCP, obviously THCO, the DEA just came out and said as a full synthetic. How do you even begin to test for that? And then how do you even begin to like test for accuracy with something that two part of the question, right? On one end, it's a new minor cannabinoid that does exist. So maybe there's a reference point, but also maybe there's not a reference point. And so like, how do you even start to make sense of that whole web of stuff that is in the marketplace and consumers are consuming and putting in their bodies, especially in states like Texas? So it's a hot topic, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, and I, you know, and we didn't get into hemp too much, but you, you're right. The hemp-based testing is just so different from state to state because a lot of the states are just like, I don't know, it's legal federally, it's not my problem. We don't have a testing rule, so those customers can send it wherever they want and they switch out the products or do whatever they want. There's kind of no oversight there. The feds are weird because you've got the Department of Ag who legalized it, but the FDA is saying, well, we're not going to touch it because we also have prescription versions of these compounds, and so we can't even touch it. So half the federal government has completely legalized it. And so it's become right for kind of people to take those laws and interpret them how they want without clear sort of guidance on those laws or regulatory oversight. And part of it just is there isn't clear kind of quality control best practices. Some hemp-based product consumer or producers might test everything to a greater degree than the cannabis industry is with reputable labs and some other people might not test at all or send it to a lab that's not even a real a reputable lab or has any experience with cannabis and is just looking for a number that they can go and sell it with which is not a problem in the marijuana industry anymore because the marijuana industry has to at least test with licensed labs so you at least have to cross that threshold but then part of kind of that is is what people have started experimenting with the, the cbd and the other cannabinoids that are legal in hemp plants but you know you obviously anything over 0.3% THC is not legal in a hemp plant. Well, how do you get that same intoxicating effect with a hemp-based product that I can sell everywhere? And it started with very kind of innocuous transformations or chemical reactions. You can take CBD and you can really easy convert it into an isomer or uh, basically the THC molecule with just one 
chemical bond off. It's still very similar to the original THC molecule. And this actually, this chemical reaction actually happens in cannabis flower sitting on the vine just through natural processes to a small degree. So even if you consume marijuana, you're likely consuming a small amount of Delta A. Well, okay, so that's not a very long road to hoe. You're still making a product that shows up in the cannabis naturally. You don't have to get too complicated on your synthesis, so you're not leaving a lot of potentially harmful byproducts in the product, presumably if you are if you know what you're doing. That's a big if. And say, well, that's not too, too far a road to hoe. Now, legal, I'm not even going to debate the legality of whether that's really allowed under the farm bill or not. But, you know, as far as as a chemist and thinking about myself, would I consume one of those products? Sure. So that's kind of the stepping stone. Well, what you've happened now is people have gotten more and more creative. They're starting to take those CBD compound and other hemp plant compounds as starting materials. And they're starting to basically synthesize out of those materials chemicals that still have activate our cannabinoid receptors and give you an intoxicating effect. But they're starting to look further and further from, chemically speaking, different from that original THC molecule. And now you're creating, and a lot of these molecules, people are creating molecules that get you high, but they're, they become so far removed from the natural cannabinoids that they might as well be kind of spice or K1 or some of those other synthetic cannabinoids that were going around before legalization to, so people could pass drug tests or people couldn't get access to cannabis. And in maybe some of these compounds are, are incredibly beneficial, but they're new compounds and they need to be studied as such. They need to, their safety profile characterized with cannabis, legalizing cannabis. People have been th- smoking cannabis, consuming cannabis for thousands of years. We knew when we got into this experiment what the safety profile was of cannabis and it was very low. We could afford to experiment with legalization outside of the standard FDA approval process. But now that we're making new compounds, I'm not against it, but A, the the compounds need greater testing because now we have to look for all of this sort of byproducts from making those compounds. And we don't necessarily know what those are going to be. You hit on a really good topic. Our tests are really good at identifying and quantifying compounds that we're looking for. But when we test something, a lot of times people are like, well, can you tell what else is in there? And that's a much more expensive and time-consuming process to look for what else is in there. And none of the states require us to do that. And it's almost impossible unless that's the intent from the start. And so you need greater testing to make sure other things aren't in there. You need greater oversight before those compounds are testing in humans and animals and then humans to make sure that these compounds won't give you cancer five years later or something crazy or cause heart attacks or something weird like that. Um, it's just it makes me really uneasy when we start putting compounds that are essentially new compounds into humans and seeing what happens. But I also come from the fighting this drug war for years and years and from the activist side, and I worry about government overreach and telling people what they can and can't put in their body. But I think in this regard, once we've gotten away from compounds that, that theoretically could occur in nature and we made people have already been consuming so we can look at that data, I just think we need greater oversight of this so that way we don't get some sort of consumer safety issue. People start getting hurt and there's a black eye in the, the hemp industry or the cannabis industry more broadly. So that's my concern. It's a complicated question. I don't want to limit people's access and I'm not denying that it's possible. Some of these compounds may be extremely beneficial for 
medical purposes or totally safe, just recreational substances, but we shouldn't be putting them in people until we've at least studied them, I think. Yeah, it's a deviation. And I think it maybe the analogy is, you know, the frog sitting in a hot pot of water. It thinks it's, it's just like, oh, this is nice. This is cozy. And the next thing you know, you're burned. And so I just like always want to be a voice of reason in the industry. I think this podcast, and I don't say that like I'm, I'm bright by any means. I just want to be a voice that is asking questions that we can collectively start to dissect together because there's too much, oh, it's just cannabis. Like, oh, it's fine. And I'm like, yeah, well, if it's grown outdoors, it's going to have different residuals than maybe something that was grown indoors. And that's going to have variabilities based on other inputs. What are they using for pesticides or not pesticides? And so it's like just testing cannabis is a can of worms, let alone now you're expanding it. You're now testing different types of products. So a flower versus then you're turning something into a concentrate versus then now this weird world of these cannabinoids that deviate close and far away from the intrinsic piece of the plant. It's a hard conversation to attack. And I think we were in that panel at South by and one of the gentlemen in the audience, he asked a really valid question that I want to repose for the listeners to understand. This is where I exist in. He was asking what you were just outlining. We don't know what the long-term effects of some of these things are. How do we feel as an industry knowing that we are putting products into the marketplace for people to consume that don't have long-term testing? And obviously part of that is access to the full plant due to legalities. But now it really comes down to testing capabilities. And to your other point, unless you're asking it as a brand to have that test being done for what else is in here and also the cost of what those other tests will add up to be. It's not as accessible, I think, is maybe the word I'll use for people to comfortably be like, yeah, you know what, let's go ahead and do that. And so I don't think it's because people don't care. I think it's just we're moving so fast. Everybody's like, oh, it's cannabis. It's fine. This is fine. I know my guy. I know my gal. They're doing great things. Like, let's all just, you know. And I think I definitely resonate with your sentiment for sure being an operator in this Texas market where I want consumers to have access and I want them to have choice and I want them to be able to decide what they put in their bodies. It's my job as an operator to bring the best quality of that product to market. But obviously there are there are other components, other inputs that we as an industry have to be mindful of. And one of those is where testing falls into it. And so I'm just grateful to have had this conversation with you for the podcast. I know we probably could be talking for hours on end about digging in deeper on these topics, but I'll kind of leave it open-ended for you to add any final thoughts or comments or any next steps for SC Labs for this trust in testing certification, if it's already rolled out, are you accepting new labs? Kind of what does that look like? But really just want to end maybe on a positive note of what are you looking forward to maybe this next quarter, this next season? All right. Well, yeah. In the trust in testing, I'll t- touch on that. Yeah. Like definitely open to other laboratories. We started up, we put the outline of the of the accreditation to make sure it encompassed what we've seen over the years to be best practices with our experience. But then we're handing it off to a third-party group that does accreditations for other to other standards for laboratories so that give it that independent governance. Sure, a lot of the laboratories wouldn't want me coming in and <laughs> going through all their SOPs and nor would I want to. I, I wouldn't want to have that liability. It's, we're you know going to hand that off and it's still fresh. So you're not going to see too many products yet with the truth and testing label. But as a consumer, 
if it's something to look out for and you'll know that the laboratory that did that testing went through a bunch of extra steps to make sure that their, their label is accurate. So look for that. But as far as I'm growing more and more optimistic these days about the cannabis industry, I've always kept the dream alive, but it's been a rough point. California isn't the only, only sort of market in the States that have been seeing this, but you know, this big boom with hemp right around the same time that we were getting the tail end of the marijuana boom. And you know, like we we're talking about earlier, you had a bunch of people get into the industry thinking there's a quick fortune to be made. And that wasn't the case. But what it did is it's oversupplied the industry. We had too much product and prices fell through the floor. And a lot of really good companies didn't make it because in, in aren't. But I think it seems like there's like a five year boom cycle ish, five ish year boom cycle in most of these rec markets where people are scaling up and then that overproduction kicks in. They've, there's overproduced for the in-state demand, and it just gets, gets to be really rocky for several years in a lot of these markets. And we've seen that in California, and I feel like in California, um, and maybe starting to get out of it. In Michigan, it's every state we're in is a different stage in that. Michigan is hitting the end of that boom period. Colorado certainly is at the end. It has already seemed to started to recover. California seems to start to recover. We're now things settle out where they need to be. People are making a living again. You don't hear about a new company going under every day. On the hemp side of things, I think it's a similar thing. A bunch of people got into hemp. And it depends which segment you are in the supply chain, but a bunch of people got into hemp. There was an oversupply and, and then a lot of people dropped out. And now that seems to be stabilizing. So it seems like the industry seems to be stabilizing. It doesn't happen as quick as anyone would like, but we're getting sort of positive signals and the bank, the banking, the safe banking bill almost passed. It just needed an extra vote or two. And so hopefully they're going to keep pushing that through until it passes. And that would be a huge boon for the industry. So it's baby steps and it's not happening quickly, but it seems like things, especially over this last six, nine months have been trending in the right direction for both the marijuana side, the hemp side to where there's a safe, stable industry. People are making a good living. We're still innovating. I'm still seeing new innovative products every day that, you know, I'm judging right now for the Emerald Cup, which is the big cup everywhere, but it's in California. And I'm judging the cartridge category. So I've been smoking way too many vape carts from all over the state. And it's just, I've been doing this for a few years now. And it's just, we're still seeing new and innovative products in that category. And I think there's still a lot of blue sky in both cannabis and hemp, but it's not, it's not a quick, easy bucket like it maybe was for a period of time, which is good. I think we're getting leaner. We're getting more built for sort of the long haul. And hopefully politics will continue its slow slug to righteousness, but it's definitely, it's a slow journey. It's not a fast one. We're getting there. I'm cautiously optimistic and broadly speaking, that things will continue to get better. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the To Be Blunt podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed the enlightening discussions and insights we've shared today. But the conversation doesn't end here. I invite you to join my vibrant community of cannabis enthusiasts, experts, and advocates. So what can you do to stay connected and get involved? First, make sure you subscribe to To Be Blunt on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed our show, I would truly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review it. Your feedback helps the podcast grow and reach more listeners like you. Next, head over to our website, 
www.tobebluntpod.com, where you'll find a wealth of resources, exclusive content, and our show archives. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest cannabis news and events. Lastly, I would love to hear your thoughts, questions, and episode suggestions. Connect with me and the show on social media. Find us on Instagram at tobebluntpod and at theshadedtorabi. Let's keep the conversation going and work together to dispel myths, break stigmas, and celebrate the incredible world of cannabis. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, stay curious, stay informed, and stay blunt. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash tobeblunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.